people organizing the human trafficking, they're doing it for financial purposes. That goes very often through a bank. So in that respect, we do have a role to play. Hi, and welcome to The Laundry, the podcast connecting AML, compliance, and financial crime to the real world. I'm your host, Marit, CEO of Strice, and in this episode, we are asking, how do big banks tackle human trafficking? Human trafficking is one of those vague umbrella terms which actually hides a lot of human suffering. While figures are hard to find for these shadowy operations, estimates put those trafficked into forced labor at around 27 million people globally. That's million forced into domestic work, construction sites, agriculture, sexual exploitation, and many more dark avenues. A quarter of those trafficked are under the age of 18, and more than 70% are women and girls. But anyone can find themselves a victim. This is a huge global problem that financial services can help to identify and eradicate, but only if it steps up to the challenge. So in this episode, we will be asking, how does banking and human trafficking overlap? What are the red flags all banks should be looking for? And do banks have a moral responsibility to combat these issues? To get into the topic, I'm delighted to be joined by Anita Nedegor, country AML responsible in Nordea. Welcome, Anita. Thank you so much, Marit, and uh, thank you for having me. It's an interesting topic, definitely. So what should our listeners know about you and your role at Nordea? Um, on on me, my, my background is I am a, a lawyer, uh, but I have worked in the financial sector for almost 30 years uh, in various positions. Um, I took over this position as a country I'm responsible for Nordea Bank in Denmark uh, in 2019. Uh, and my role here is to keep oversight of what that we are doing what we should do according to the AML Act and the regulation around us, making sure we have the right processes for KYC and transaction monitoring and, and all the stuff that's in that in that space. And then um, you can say we have also expanded it a bit to take up the, the corporate social responsibility. So we are also very much engaged in the sector work and in supporting uh, the uh, the society in, in fighting financial crime uh, to to the best we can, like providing our knowledge or the the data we have uh, and and so on. So so that is sort of my role and and my background. This episode of the Laundry is brought to you in association with Vidvask and Terror Financing Conference in Copenhagen. This is the event for all those working to tackle AML and terror financing in 2023. Bring together experts across the financial, private, and public sectors is a chance to learn and discuss the hottest topics in the industry right now. The conference is taking place on October 11th and 12th, 2023. Find out more at insightsevent.dk. So in terms of the lines of defense, are you then second line or third line of defense? No, I'm in first line of defense. Oh, first it's line, a first okay. line uh, role, um, and and we have in in Nordea uh, three thousand four hundred people working in in first line on on this area, um, building up, of course, the Nordic operation. We are Nordic Bank, right? Um, so my role, sort of, you could say, is to ensure that when we have all these people working, both on developing tools and and IT and so on, and and of course also the operation to make sure the the Danish angle is taken into 
consideration and, and making sure that uh, that full machinery is working to accommodate what we need to, to gain in, in from, it, from, from a Danish perspective. So now I got really curious. So you have yeah, over 3,000 people in the first line. It's massive. And I mean, it's a good thing, right? But yeah. uh, how has yeah. that changed over, how has that developed over time? But it has developed a lot. I mean, uh, it's it's a, a well-known thing that Nordea got uh, got fined in in 15 in, in Sweden, and we also had a un, unpleasant on-site inspection from the Danish FSA back in 15, and got the report in 16 uh, and so on, and, and had a lot of trouble on that. So we sort of got highlighted that our defense on financial crime was not sufficient. So we have uh, worked a lot on that uh, since then. Um, and I, I joined Nadia in 16 and, and then it was very clear to me and I joined as an in-house in lawyer, uh, very clear that we need um, to, to improve on this area. And, and, and we have done, um, we have invested more than 8 billion Danish kroner, which is more than 1 point, I think 1.2 uh, billion euros um, over these years since since 1516 um, and that is all you can say on all parts of the value chain right it's it's about the IT tools for KYC and transaction monitoring sanction screening and all that but it's also about training people to understand what is this about then that is training of course for the people working in the operational side with the KYC and the TM, but it's also on the front line, the, the colleagues we have meeting the customers to understand what signals should I look for, um, the, the knowledge we used to have about the customer, how should we um, be cautious that uh, that can transform into to being us being used for financial crime purposes. So it has been across the value chain. So we are more than 30,000 uh, colleagues in the, in Nordea, and we are all trained yearly on this subject to to have the um, overall awareness that uh, that we we are very settled that we do not want to be a bank that is used for financial crime. So in that respect, we take it a bit broader than you, you, you would see from the regulation, but we think that's sort of the responsibility we have being a bank of this size. I can clearly hear that you are passionate about this topic. <laughs> and before we get into the actual topic of this episode, I just got to ask you one final question, and that is, what was it that triggered you to become an AML nerd? Uh, I, I think actually it, it has been sort of underlying in, in, in my career uh, over the, the, the many years. Um, when I worked as a lawyer back in the beginning of the 90s, I, I worked very much with bankruptcy. And, and some of those that went bankruptcy with their uh, the companies, some of the like, if you are when you are a very young lawyer, you work with the very small ones, right? And very often they were a bit crooks, uh, and that was quite clear. And then I went into the financial sector and worked with product development and and daily banking activity and so on. That is also very very interesting interesting subject. But when I joined Nadia, and I joined it to be head of retail banking law, meaning supporting the bank on the legal side, then it also became my responsibility to uh, the AML area was also my responsibility. And I had very good experts in my team working with this area. But as we went along, it was very clear to me that uh, we, we had a lot to improve on, uh, on all areas. Uh, so it, 
and and it was very important for the bank because we 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 really uh, was not doing what we should back in in 15. So working with that, it sort of got into me, and it sort of I don't know tied some <laughs> a bow on on my career in some way that I sort of got back to to working uh, working with an area that was familiar to me even uh, even 30 years ago. So super in that respect, I yeah I just think it's. It's a super, super relevant subject from a society perspective. And this, I think, is actually, I mean, as a bank, you support customers every day in gaining their goals and their uh, aspirations, supporting them when they want to buy a house or start a business or whatever. Uh, this is more, you could say, an area where the bank can support society um, and 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 also on the back of the financial crisis and so on, it's very clear that bank has a very important role to play in society. And people often ask me, but why is it a job for the banks? And my answer to that is because we are the one who can do it. I mean, we are the ones who see the transaction coming through the pipes we have, uh, maybe going to other customers, maybe going in and out of the bank, but we have that overview. And to do a proper investigation uh, on financial crime, you need to have access and understand the transactions. And, and I think there's two paths you can choose as a society. Either you put some responsibility and some task to the banks, that's what we have chosen in, in the EU, or you get the authorities access to look into all our customers' accounts. So, because you, you cannot fight financial crime without understanding the uh, transaction patterns and, and the transactions that is actually taking place. So, so that is why I think we have a, yeah, a, a, you could say social responsibility on, on this area. Again, I can hear you're passionate. So thank you for that introduction. And now let's dive into the conversation and the topic about how banks can tackle human trafficking. So to start off, so how does banking and human trafficking overlap? Yeah, you could say, and the actual human trafficking, like forcing people or transporting them or hosting them, you could say that's not really much to do with banking, but people are doing this for a purpose, right? Like the people organizing the human trafficking, they are doing it for financial purposes. And, and that financial transactions they then get, that goes very often through uh, transactions uh, through a bank. Um, so in that respect, we do have a role to play to detect and observe these transactions and report that to authorities. And of course, we as a bank, we do not do the investigation as such. That's on the authority side, but we are the ones to have our setup uh, also to look for uh, anything that give us suspicion of human trafficking. So Either how do you? I, uh, sorry. So how do you? Th that's super interesting. So I mean. Like you said, you monitor the transaction through your pipes, etc. So how how are you able to detect such red, red flags when you try to spot human trafficking? And and that is a very difficult area, human trafficking, because it's so broad, right? We very often people sort of think of human trafficking as prostitution or people being forced, and especially women being forced into prostitution. And that is, of course, also 
human trafficking, but we also see it uh, in, in other forced labor. It could be uh, people coming from mainly Asia, I would say in Denmark, to be forced to work in restaurants for very, very low salary, or maybe being forced to work very long hours. Uh, it could be people being uh, trafficked to to work in construction area or berry pickers and so on. So it's it's quite broad, and because it's so broad, it's also very difficult for our transaction monitoring to detect, because the way we build our you could say regulatory transaction monitoring is that we build scenarios. So we we sort of screen all transactions to look if we have specific patterns that we then can detect. On this area, it's very rare that we can detect it that way, or at least it's very difficult. So how, how do you do it then? What's the, uh, how, do you, how are you able to then to go and investigate and uncover this? Yeah, but the, the most, I, I mean, where we have had the most succeed, success with this is that look into sort of, if you, if you have a suspicion that uh, someone is being um, a victim of trafficking for prostitution, then we can set up some parameters saying, um, if you are here working not voluntarily with prostitution, you your pattern, your transaction pattern would look in a specific way. And that is built based on um, knowledge we have for for looking into cases where we know there has been this this has been the case then looking at what is then the specifics around a woman being forced into prostitution and when you have then set up those parameters we sort of doing the transaction monitoring the other way around so we we now know what we are looking for and then it's easier to detect so we take that model put up the parameters uh, and it's also about what kind of customer. It's usually not a Danish citizen, right? So it's so using those parameters and then on the back of that, run that through our customer base and run that through our uh, their, their, that customer base transactions and then look into what does it look like? Does mm, this woman, yeah, does he get payment from... Um, websites that uh, we can see is related to providing sexual videotapes or sexual sort of uh, small uh, live stream sessions um, or is there payments uh, going to ad advertising for prostitution and all that kind of stuff and then of course looking into do we get mobile pay payments does she get mobile pay payments from a lot of guys usually, right? In specific areas, like is it like 200, 300, 500 kroner, then it, it could indicate there's a, some, something indicates prostitution here. Super then, interesting. Yeah. So what if, so that's one very good example. Let's talk about the construction industry example, people being forced to come and work at construction sites for a low pay, etc. I can imagine then like construction, if a business wants to be onboarded at Nordea, it's in the construct construction industry, you can right there kind of set this as a high-risk customer. So maybe you can monitor it more actively and so forth. Mm. Is there anything already there that allows you to be, okay, we're going to take on this customer, might be associated with high risk, but now we, you know, this is the parameters we're looking for in this type of business. And yeah, you, you touched upon a, a very interesting part here because uh, looking at the, the companies that are using this kind of 
labor, uh, the forced labor, that that could be our customer, right? And then, of course, we, we need to look into what kind of customer we're dealing with. They will usually not tell us the full story in the KYC uh, uh, requirements and, and when we talk about them, when onboarding and so on. So this is about detecting is, are they having a pattern that is what we expect to see? And you can see from a Danish perspective, we are a very digitalized society. So when a corporate have a high, in a construction area, have a high need for cash, then that sort of rings some alarm bells, right? Because that is, could indicate that they pay people uh, for for non-detached work um, uh, in in cash. And and if you are a regular company in a construction area, you would never use cash for for paying salaries because it will just give you much more uh, administrative work if if you are reporting the tax rate. Um, so so that's a clear indicator. And then you could say there's a you, I, it, it, um, you touched upon also an interesting part. There's two points here, right? One thing is detect the people that is victim of human trafficking. But the interesting part is to get to the organizers, right? Those that are actually um, having uh, getting the, the benefit out of this. So that is the interesting part. And also uh, a follow-up question here, because, you know, in financial crime, we talk a lot about playing cat and mouse with the criminals, the criminals yes. always using new methodology. I'm sure all of the criminals know by now that, okay, I shouldn't go for the cash option because, you know, it just puts me in, you know, high-risk bucket, I will be investigated, etc. So what are the, some of, have you seen any developments or trends in this area the last couple of years on how people are trying to you know, the criminals are trying to hide their tracks? I I would say our experience is that if you are in this space being uh, organizing uh, trafficking or, uh, or in any, I mean, if you are in this area as an organizer, like being the guy behind getting the benefit out of it, um, you are also engaged in other other kinds of financial crime. It could be invoice factories. Oh, so you think it's like tax. a big, there's a big overlap in terms of people? Who... Yes, definitely. As uh, as the people in our reporting unit, the, the MLO officers used to say that criminals are not picky for what they're doing, as long as it, 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 it provides them ben, uh, some profits. And I think you, you will see an overlap. It's not like you are in only dealing with prostitution and human trafficking for prostitution then very often you will also be engaged in some drug dealing or transporting in in that area and if you are engaged in in having forced labor work into construction you're most likely also engaged in some way in some invoice factoring um so there's yes there's an overlap because the, the criminals do not mind how they earn their money as long as they get money I mean, it's all interconnected a bit then. So, I mean, it might be hard to kind of distill human combating human tra trafficking from the other types of crime. But how high is this issue on Nordea's priority list? But it, it, but it is, of course, high on our agenda. Um, but and and you can say the the methodology we use to capture and look for this organized crime is the same methodology we use for other kinds of organized crime it could be the invoice factoring which is unfortunately quite common in Denmark which is I guess partly because we, we pay so much taxes in Denmark right it's like 
that will pay more than 50% of our, our salary to pay. So, so if you can get people to work for you and not paying the taxes, then you can gain a lot. Um, so if, if you are into that area, so the methodology around identifying the parameters and then look into like make the screening based on that so we know, know what we're looking for, that is very much more efficient than the ordinary transaction monitoring. So, so the method is sort of the same for the for for the uh, how we detect financial crime and the way we work with it now i mean we can only do so much right we can only look for this detection and then we can report to the fiu telling we have suspicion here and then of course we can do the best we can to provide the information to the fiu to make it possible for the police authorities to do their investigation uh, but but this is a cooperation uh, to fight for this. sure so I was just curious if you have noticed some new trends in de-risking. If you know you guys suspect you detect something suspicious, you report it in, and of course you need to wait for the authorities, etc. But have you seen the bank engaging more in like, okay, this is risky. We're still waiting for feedback from the government, but in this case, we're going to go with the de-risking route. But I, I would not. I mean, it, it's been a bit on what you call de-risking. I mean, to me, it's not de-risking that if we have identified a customer that is using us for illegal purposes, then uh, yes, we do. We, we, of course, engage with customers and, and ask them. Um, and, and if you are in this space, sometimes some of the customers, they might have done something illegal, they might have done something wrong, but they might also have been forced into it. So, so let's we will have that discussion with the customer. And then if we do not... Uh, believe in you could say in recovery <laughs> then then we are, are very fast in exiting the customer and saying you, you, we, we do not want to be part of your business um, what the sad part about that is that it's super easy to get another bank in Denmark like we have 60 banks in Denmark so you can easily jump to the next one and start up your activity there and 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 in the sector work in Denmark we have for years shouted that we would like to have better opportunity to share information, but we, we can't at the moment tell the new bank that you are now taking over a customer where we have made several reporting on and we have detected them to be or involved in, in some kind of financial crime. That's not allowed due to the bank secrecy. So now we're putting our effort and hopes into this public-private partnership that we have just established in Denmark, where we can, together with the police authorities and a number, number of other authorities, get closer in detecting um, sort of um, organized financial crime that we, uh, together with the police, they can ask us questions and then we can provide them information. Then they can carry on with their investigation and then they can ask us more questions and maybe also join the information from various financial institutions into uh, making the authorities much better in detecting this. Super interesting. Yes. yes. I guess, uh, well, you know, better um, information sharing would be on your list when I ask you, Absolutely. okay, if you can weigh a wand, what would be you know, accept them information sharing, what would be the other two things on your top three list of what needs to be done to help the sector catch more criminals and combat this issue? I, I think, um, I think we, we have improved a lot across the value chain. Like when I talk about the value chain, I mean, the, 
the ob obligated institute, like the the uh, the corporates that are subject to the AML Act and needs to have this monitoring, need to do the reporting to the FIU. There's been a lot of improvement over the years across in Denmark, right? Then we have like the FIU, then we have the police authorities, the tax authorities, and and all those law enforcement um, activities going on in the sector side. What I would like actually to see is that we have a look across to see the effort we are doing on each step of the value chain. Where should we improve to do, to have a better defense? from a society perspective, I think that could be super relevant. Um, and and uh, it I my and I think that's well recognized that it's much more easy for a bank of our size to put in more money in this area and, and to improve than it is to get more police officers who need to be trained and educated, right? Uh, to get more um, the, the right tools also for them and so on. So, I mean, from my experience, they are working super hard and very, very dedicated on this area. But it could be interesting to see where we're looking at it from a society perspective, where should we put more effort and resources into the value chain? I'm obviously, you know, talking about the value chain, I'm obviously very optimistic on, you know, the role that technology will play and particularly AI. We've been working with that for such a long time and we can really see the benefits now come into play. So in terms of generative AI, are you more optimistic that it will help catch the criminals or that they will utilize it to be even harder to catch? I think for uh, at least uh, at least for now, I think the criminals are better in utilizing that when we are in, in utilizing it to catch them. Uh, they are very often a, a step ahead of of uh, both the financial institutions and and the law enforcement. So, so I I fear a bit they are better in the criminals are better in utilizing it than than we are. What can be some of the you know the disheartening moments or the most discouraging moments for someone? working in this space? Of course, it's uh, discouraging to see that they, this just goes on and on. And and then you could be sort of disappointed say, seeing that putting so much effort into it, so much money that we have done from the DSI, and then still still we detect crime, still we see that uh, that uh, that that uh, that we can't really stop it. That could sort of say you could be disappointed about. but. But that I think is just a that's just a that's just how it is. That's a starting point is that we will never we will never get to a a place where we can say now we have done it, work is done, we are finalized. This is always like if you gain something, then it's just up back on the horse and the next step. That's sort of the baseline for this work. So on the flip side then, what has been some of the most, or what has been one of your most proudest moments working in this role? I think actually this this private-public partnership that um, that we in the sector and, and I personally has contributed to to having been we have pushed for in in the uh, in the ministries and on the authorities to say we want to be closer to you. Um, I I'm I'm really you could say you could say proud. I don't know if that is the right word, but very pleased to see that that we have succeeded in that area. Uh, and I can tell you, if we one day succeed in getting better uh, opportunities for information sharing, I would raise the flag and pop a, a champagne. That would be a huge gain 
in, in the fight, that's for sure. Let's all hope we get there sooner <laughs> rather than later. So um, thank you so much for sharing so much about this topic. But I'm also curious to hear that if you could suggest a topic or a guest for the laundry, who do you think we should speak to? I think a topic that we have not talked about, which is already very close to my heart, is how does cash relate to financial crime? In, in my perspective, cash is always involved. So when we are getting more and more digitalized, then why do we have so much cash floating? Uh, that could also be an interesting topic for you to, to touch upon. And with that, that brings this spin of the laundry to an end. Anita, thank you so much for joining me. Um, where can people find out more about you and connect with you? I'm on LinkedIn, and that's mainly my, uh, you could say, professional uh, social media. So you can find me there. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to go and check out the back catalog and follow The Laundry on your podcast platform of choice or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please also leave a review. To get in touch with The Laundry team, you can comment on the Strice LinkedIn page or email laundry at strice.ai. Your host for this episode was me, Marit. Our producer was Matt and our engineer was Nicholas. The Laundry is proudly produced by Strice, an AML intelligence system. Find out more about us at strice.ai. See you next time. Yeah,